The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Hello there, everybody, and this is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today, the focus of our program and the focus of a lot of events that are related to our program is on the question of the elections and specifically how that affects archaeology. Um, Obviously, this week is the uh, major event for the Republican Party in the United States, and we have an upcoming election that certainly provides a certain contrast in many, many positions that the government and that the United States generally will take going forward. So we thought it was very timely if we presented a segment on archaeology and the presidency and probably more generally archaeology and the changing governments. And in that context, uh, we are going to provide a certain amount of review because we've discussed governmental policies on archaeology and historic preservation in the past. But if we're going to break it down over the long rush of time and the long uh, perspectives that we have on preservation and how these vary with respect to various administrations, uh, various congressional acts, then uh, we should put this in some kind of a historic perspective. And since we are based in North America, we will begin with the North American fix on what archaeology is about, what historic preservation is about, and what the general policies that we followed over the course of time are. So as a segue into that, let's talk a little bit as we open up, about the uh, initial elements of historic preservation and the inauguration of comprehensive preservation programs in the United States. The baseline legal 
context for preservation was established formally in 1906, and that was the national of uh, the uh, the ancient and not ancient, excuse me, it was the Antiquities Act, which in large measure probably reflects the perspectives brought on by one of the most prominent and one of the most forceful presidents in the history of our country, and that would be. Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt was a Republican, which may come as a surprise to many of you who are not familiar with the historic background of the preservation movement, but Teddy Roosevelt was a very unusual individual. And he gave, came into power uh, not as president, but as vice president to William McKinley, who was uh, assassinated in 1901. Uh, Teddy, at that time, was part of, and I'm calling him Teddy because uh, I've read a lot about him, and uh, that's the name he goes under uh, in any kind of a familiar kind of perspective, and I like this guy a whole lot. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt was, uh, as I said, a vice president. Uh, William McKinley, the Republican president at the time, was assassinated in 1901. Um, Teddy Roosevelt served out the rest of that administration as the president and was elected um, Subsequently, in 1904, Teddy Roosevelt was, as many of you know, a complex individual, and for better or worse, his perspectives on conservation were very, very large, were very, very broad, and very perspicacious in many ways. On the other hand, um, we see a certain conflict between his conservation perspective and the fact that he was an outdoorsman, that he was a skilled hunter, that he was involved in many positions, and he took many positions, that if you're looking at left-right classifications of what politics is like today, would sort of appear to be a jumble. But one thing that he was very clear about was the importance of preserving America's natural and cultural resources. And Teddy was responsible for the initiation of the National Park Service in its present form, and also for instituting and promoting the Antiquities Act. The Antiquities Act was basically the very first preservation guideline for this country. And Teddy, or Teddy uh, Roosevelt was a Republican. And if we look at the grand march of preservation activities since the early part of the 20th, 20th century, we see that by and large the uh, role of historic preservation went through a series of ups and downs. And it's it, it, it was really launched into the future and launched into a very major position in the American ethos, if you will, during the FDR administration, during the Roosevelt administration. We did a previous program by Bernard Means, who did a very comprehensive uh, discussion based on his volume on the New Deal and Franklin D. Roosevelt, in which uh, the Roosevelt's Franklin D. Roosevelt's forward-thinking administration 
made uh, archaeology and preservation a major component of his New Deal. And the, pro the guidelines for that program, program were very simply to put Americans to work. And uh, since there were a number of development projects at that time, and the Antiquities Act was in force, Roosevelt, Teddy, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, rather, was able to wed and join conservation, preservation, and job creation, and I would emphasize job creation, as part of the New Deal and part of an extensive archaeological expansion program. Essentially, Franklin Roosevelt put uh, unemployed Americans to work for improving the National Park Service and for excavating some of the very major archaeological sites across the United States, which at that time were in danger of disappearing. So some of the largest excavations in the Southwest, in the Midwest, in parts of the Northeast as well, and certainly in the Southeast, were initiated by Franklin Delano Roosevelt's forward-thinking programs. Now, that program suffered a minor hiccup uh, with the outbreak of World War II and uh, subsequent to the invasion of Pearl Harbor by the Japanese. And uh, that hiccup didn't last really all that long, and it was resumed with the fluorescence of what we call the River Basin Surveys that started to look at <clears throat> the expansion of water and drainage and hydroelectric projects as part and parcel of the development and the promotion of American progress in the middle part of the 20th century. Uh, the river basin surveys were organized and led by archaeologists who cut their teeth on the New Deal projects. They advanced into senior positions, and as a result, these extremely large-scale projects that looked at um, uh, that, uh, that looked at prehistory and history to a large degree from the vantage point of large development operations, essentially conflating the two objectives of these operations into something that essentially represented a scientific approach to archaeology. And what I mean by that is they looked at major drainage networks, the Mississippi Valley, the Ohio River Valley, the Colorado Valley, as frameworks for which to undertake archaeology. And of course, drainages are uh, a natural conflation of looking at prehistoric settlement, historic growth, because river resources are central to the, system, to the systematic distribution of archaeological sites. And as a result of that uh, conflation and of that mapping on, if you will, of major development projects along major rivers, the river basin surveys were really a major turning point in the history of American archaeology. Now, you could really uh, attribute all of this to, as I said before, to the Roosevelts. And the Roosevelts, first of all, Teddy Roosevelt, who was a Republican, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was uh, a Democrat, 
And these guys, if we want to look at this and sort of and paint a happy face on it, this was, in fact, a bipartisan venture. And if you look at the American ethos in grander perspective, and we'll look at that in a little bit later on in the program, then you'll see there is a very distinctive preservation ethic, certainly up until the last 30 years, that brought the parties together to some degree. And if we look at preservation in the grand sense, then we see that the interests of maintaining heritage are, in a sense, a uniquely American phenomenon. Um, and by the same token, they isolate and they bring to the fore, if you will, the long, greater sweep of who we are and what our identities are. Now, you can argue that historic America is largely a story of Euro-American settlement and the attendant repercussions of what that meant. But again, if you look at it in terms of the times, then the heritage ethic really was a story of almost inadvertently bringing together the prehistory, which is clearly a story, a story of Native Americans, and histo history, which is largely a story of Euro European American dominance and, in a sense, um, hegemony over the North American continent. So we see some very conflicting political themes here that essentially uh, tie into what some of the values of Republicans and Democrats writ large would eventually take. And the interesting part of those uh, developments and where they start to diverge, one could argue, is in the latter part of the 20th century. And after these words, we'll get into a little bit greater discussion of what that means and what that bodes in terms of the upcoming election and of the general perspectives that the parties, the primary parties of this country present in terms of their view on historic preservation and archaeology. Don't go away. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Tune in each week for Monica Phillips and powerful conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Can you do 
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Joe Schuldenrein back with you on a election period, an election perspective, if you will, on historic preservation and archaeology. And there have been a lot of reverberations within the archaeological com- community on what this particular election means, given that it is, by any objective assessment, one of the most polarizing elections in recent memory. And one of the perspectives that I wanted to bring into this discussion was the background to historic preservation that has that that serves as a backdrop to where we're going and how the particular parties uh, develop their perspectives and how they champion or don't champion historic preservation as an objective. And as we were discussing in the first segment, it would seem as if since the development of and the uh, passage of the Antiquities Act in 1906, there seemed to be a strong uh, interdependence, if you will, and a cooperative atmosphere if you will, between the Democrat and the Republican parties in the area of historic preservation. Now, let's not harbor any illusions. Uh, Historic preservation has never really been the highest priority of any administration, but it it, it has certainly factored into our Uh, national policies. And as I said before, in the first half of the 20th century, there seemed to be a shared belief and a cooperative atmosphere in terms of advancing the positions of the National Park Service, the major governmental agencies that dealt with questions of historic preservation, like the National Forest Service, like the, the Forest Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the Bureau of Reclamation. Those agencies seemed to at least place a premium of some significance on historic preservation programs that went hand in hand, of course, with uh, promotion of the American ethic, uh, whatever it was at that time, and it certainly was different at that time than it is today, but certainly preservation did not get a raw deal in any of these time frames. Once you get to the middle 20th century and subsequent, you start to see a parsing out and some kind of a differentiation between the parties, although it's not as clear-cut as one might think. I think the major piece of legislation that uh, even now that now fashions the perspectives that we have was the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966 and that of course has been modified in several on several occasions but it has nevertheless withstood the test of time as a legal piece of policy but what the guidelines for that policy are is <clears throat> essentially reflects the complexities of the American governmental system as well as the congressional makeup of the legislators who make up that legislation and to some degree enforce it. I would say 
that during the 1960s, when the some of the major boosts to historic preservation occurred, and as I said, the National Historic Preservation Act is one of them, and NEPA, the National Environmental Protection Act, are, is, are part of that as well, you saw sort of a fusion of uh, natural resource and cultural resource protect, protection acts get approved. And also, as I said, going forward, that laid the framework, the legal framework, but the implementation of those foundations became uh, an issue that was that became more and more shall we say, uh, one-sided as the uh, century drew to an end. Now, uh, the, the biggest piece of legislation was undertaken during the uh, Johnson administration, and Lyndon Johnson was an individual who looked at politics and governmental policy in a very uh, holistic perspective. He was responsible, for example, for rural electrification in the United States way back in the 1940s. He pushed through a lot of the uh, conservation programs and preservation programs at that time, and he saw development and preservation as going hand in hand. So that major piece of legislation was pushed through during his time. Now, he was succeeded by Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon, as many of us know, and especially those of us who lived through that period, was a very controversial character. But in the field of environmental law and preservation, Nixon did a lot for the preservation ethic. He was the person who instituted and enforced the Environmental Protection Act, EPA, created it as a federal agency. And during that time frame, some of the watchdog agencies of preservation, the Advisory Council of Historic Pre for Historic Preservation, got their boost and got their power uh, at this particular time. Now, as these developments were occurring, <clears throat> there was uh, an incredible growth in archaeology, certainly in North America, and that growth in archaeology took a lot of forms. And in many ways, it sort of got jumbled in this huge bureaucracy of enforcement agencies, some of which I had mentioned um, the uh, the Forest Service ran its own programs. The Bureau for, for Land Management read, uh, ran its own programs. And uh, as we've discussed in previous episodes, uh, the National Historic Preservation Act was really sort of the umbrella agencies that brought all of these enforcement agencies, depending on what their domains were, whether or not they were rivers, like, for example, the Army Corps of Engineers, or whether they were extensive land uh, parcels of forest, like the U.S. Forest Service, those were all under the general umbrella of the National Historic Preservation Act, and the enforcement of the preservation components of that were largely left to whichever agency undertook a particular development project. But certainly, development projects and historic preservation went hand in hand. According to the classic American perspective on private and public property, clearly public properties were very well sub, uh, subject to uh, enforcement, private lands clearly not. 
Somewhere in the 1980s, during the Reagan administration, the preservation ethic did come under some significant attack. The Advisory Council for Historic Preservation was essentially questioned, its need was questioned, and it was probably the single most important enforcement agency, umbrella agency, for uh, making sure that preservation got enforced. And thanks to a lot of very strong efforts by such groups as the Society for American Archaeology and the American Cultural Resource Association subsequent to that, <clears throat> these uh, guidelines that were originally uh, developed by the uh, NHPA legislation were guaranteed a measure of enforcement, although I have to say that during the Reagan administration to say that these enforcement guidelines were more loosely interpret interpreted is an understatement. Nevertheless, it held, and during subsequent administrations, they were variably enforced. Um, during the uh, Clinton administration, I think uh, we did a pretty good job on this. There were expansion of a variety of different types of programs. There, the preliminary indications were that during the Bush administration, uh, Bush II, um, there was going to be a tightening. There was, to some degree, that kind of tightening, but Laura Bush uh, was especially prominent in developing a number of programs towards historic preservation that um, were actually cited for a number of awards. She uh, was responsible for the Preserve America program, and uh, it was a program that had, I wouldn't say expansive perspectives, but it certainly allowed for preservation to come back to the fore and for the funding for those programs not to be slashed, but to certainly be maintained and maintained under certain guidelines. So it would be folly to say that under uh, the Bush II administration, preservation got a totally raw deal. It did not. It had spokespeople arguing for it, working for it. And uh, I think that brings us to um, more recent times where I think not a whole lot has gone on um, in terms of uh, expanding these programs. And one of the reasons for that is that um, we simply hit the Great Recession of uh, 2007. And uh, I think the next major nick point in that is uh, President Obama's programs for the American uh, Rehabilitation Act, which essentially echoed and were a smaller variant of Roosevelt's New Deal. A lot of archaeology occurred under the federal umbrella at that time, and uh, Obama can only be seen as a champion of historic preservation, again, in the manner of FDR, because he looked at preservation as a positive and productive way of putting people to work, um, creating jobs in the public sector, whose ripple effect was clearly to develop jobs in the private sector because all of those excavations, some of which were fairly large scale, required uh, culture, not only cultural resource companies, but developers to undertake and to get 
um, larger budgets that would encourage the growth spurt that we have seen in the last um, ten year, uh, the last uh, five to ten years. And uh, again, there are arguments on both sides of the fence. But if you look at the general uh, employment figures, we do see that employment rates have gone up and that a lot of people were put to, put to work. And a part of that, certainly not a massive part of it, but a good part of it, and certainly for our profession, a major shot in the arm was generated by those programs that uh, were endorsed and activated by President Obama. So that brings us to the contemporary world of politics and where we stand and what kind of a crossroads we are approaching right now in terms of preservation and archaeology and we will talk about that after we return. Stay tuned. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune into the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein. We're back with another segment of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. We've been talking about archaeology in the context of the upcoming elections, which, as I had indicated earlier, and I'm sure most of you know, are a very polarizing um, series of uh, political positions that are taken by the major parties. Um, And I suspect that 
uh, those of you who are listening to this program are trying to figure out uh, where the parties are going to stand on issues of historic preservation and how we are going to continue to do archaeology in the broader sense. Clearly, this is not the most pressing issue that we all have to, to deal with. But nevertheless, we've talked about the very positive lessons that archaeology has to bring to the public at large and for understanding major questions related to globalization, related to climate change, related to a variety of different types of uh, matters that are confronting us. And one of those, of course, is heritage management. Heritage management and uh, the ability to preserve resources has a tremendous amount to do with national identities and individual and individual countries' uh, perspectives on how they fit into the world. Let's look at, for example, globalization. And globalization is a very, very tricky issue. Um, and if you look at, in a sense, and I'm going to get a little political over here, if you look at the extreme right and the extreme left as represented by our parties, and uh, I think we, we pretty much agree that the extreme right is represented by the um, Republican Party and the extreme left was to some degree, if we want to call it that, um, represented by Bernie Sanders, who now, of course, is not the active candidate uh, for the Democratic, par prop, uh, Democratic Party, but who has nevertheless uh, succeeded in uh, affecting the uh, general thrust of where the Democrats are going, uh, we see a number of different issues. And uh, I think the position on free trade is one of them in which um, sort of the extreme right and the extreme left sort of see eye to eye. And that is a certain type of nationalization of, um, of political viewpoints and what that expresses itself with most di directly is, I think, the free trade agreement. If we look, however, on where the Democrats stand on these things, I think uh, to some degree there is an understanding that, um, that free trade is something that will have to be accommodated in the globalized world. And if we look at it from that type of, uh, from that type of perspective, then I think the appreciation of cultures and the appreciation of what ethnic groups have to contribute becomes a very, very unique issue for the United States because we have traditionally been a nation that has absorbed for better or worse, if you want to use it that way, it has absorbed people from everywhere. And I think part of the success story of the United States is the fact that we have been able to uh, accommodate a lot of the differences that people uh, were, were uh, running away from from their various countries and to sort of bring them into the melting pot mentality and the melting pot ethos of the United States. And cultural heritage and cultural values and the need to recognize identities is something that we will all have to deal with uh, as we continue to incorporate people into this American fabric. And uh, what we're seeing certainly in the Republican Party is a need to establish a unique brand of Americanism that's not necessarily warmed 
to the influx of different peoples and to the maintenance and, and perspectives on cultural heritage from a variety of different types of the world. Archaeologists tend to look at a globalized perspective. They tend to look at how various cultural traditions emerge, how they get incorporated, how they provide feedback systems for other cultures, and how Western civilization has emerged from that, and how we, in fact, honor uh, non-Western civilizations and look at non-Western civilizations as part and parcels of an integrated fabric. If we want to do that, then one of the things that we bring to the table certainly is the understanding that Native Americans in this part of the world have been the occupants of our terrain for the vast majority of human settlement on the North American continent. And understanding what Native American contributions have been is a major focus of archaeology of North America. That by the same token, if we looked at um, what other nations and what other cultures, how they've developed, if we looked at the origins of Western civilization in Europe and Mesopotamia, the um, now emerging um, records that we have of sub-Saharan African civilizations and cultures and how they have grown, we start to see that there is an incredible mapping on, if you will, of cultures and distinctive traditions in the fabric of a globalized world. And to appreciate that, we have to understand that, uh, that the integration and the uh, the the identities of other cultures are really part and parcel of this incredible fabric that we're trying to bring to the fore. When we hear slogans like, make America great again, well, you can interpret that in many ways. If And this is, of course, the uh, calling card of, of the uh, Republican Party right now. What does make America great again mean? I think that it harkens back to a time when America was visualized and perceived of as being largely, um, for lack of, of subtlety, it was a white dominant population and a population that did not really recognize any type of diversity in any significant sense other than parsing out the various white communities and Euro-American communities that came to this country and basically took it over in the latter part of the uh, 15th and early part of the 16th century. So I would caution against using that term of making America great again and say that we, we, we need to look as archaeologists and as anthropologists, which is what the school of American archaeology largely falls under, if we look at it for as, as sort of a signature for world citizenry and especially for the unique signature that is America and looking at it as a melting pot that's even greater now than it was before when it was largely favorable to uh, lighter complexioned people, then we have to appreciate the kinds of cultures that put the fabric together, put together the fabric of this country, even if it means that the color of one's skin is not necessarily the guiding point of what makes America great. 
So I think that some of the rhetoric that we've been hearing is a little bit disturbing, and I suppose that one can make the argument that um, American values as they were uh, led to a hegemony of the United States back in the middle, uh, reaching a, into the middle and latter part of the 20, 20th century, but the 21st century is certainly different. And one of the aspects that we need to look at is how we can appreciate cultural differences amongst the people who are now becoming dominant in America, and this is specifically minority cultures, is that they contribute so extensively to the fabric of who we are as a people. And if we look at archaeology as part of that, archaeology will only contribute and understanding the various origins of our various peoples will make this place a, a, a functioning um, country on a very large scale, which is, I think, what we, what we have been uh, going forward. So um, the fabrics and the uh, identities that we're starting to look at have to be uh, visualized in terms, I think, of a globalized world and in terms of, aware, uh, of, of a vision of where cultural differences need to be recognized. They need to be brought under a comprehensive umbrella that looks at the world as sort of a uh, place from which various cultural traditions emerged. Uh, archaeologists and anthropologists are now pretty content and pretty con pretty compelled to look at the out-of-Africa theories, for example, which are obviously brought to the fore by archaeologists. The out-of-Africa ideas are uh, being constantly verified by DNA testing, by uh, physical anthropological information sets, the dispersal of the earliest uh, human cultures around the world are giving clear evidence to the fact that um, humans emerged from Africa and then started dispersing all over the world. And if we look at the North American picture from that perspective, certainly within the archaeological community and within the scientific communities, you're starting to get progressively more compelling arguments to the fact that subsequent to African uh, dispersals, there were different settlement modes that characterized various parts of the world. And if you're interested in North America, then the arguments that we're having right now about when humans arrived in North America go back to a period that it's increasingly being centered around 13,000 years ago and somewhat earlier. And these human migrations are elements uh, along the evolutionary scale and developmental scale that are becoming increasingly more difficult to quash. What we're looking at, of course, is the lacuna or the, uh, the gaps within the general models that we've had in the past. Those lacuna are much greater for the early hominid dispersals, but certainly our knowledge of, of uh, North America is in, and South America, for that matter, are being increasingly focused and specified by what 
we are now understanding are changing human migrations whose pathways can be very, very strongly traced to uh, the relatively recent past. And then, of course, the dominance of Native Americans and their pervasiveness across the uh, continent is something that certainly can't be questioned. But people question it, and we will talk about that as we continue and move on to the final segment. Don't go away. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleiner Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Joe Schuldenrein back with you for a election near an, an elect, excuse me an election year perspective on archaeology and what it means um, one of the uh, blogs that I've observed on um, the impact that a potential Republican administration would have on archaeology suggests uh, that in addition to providing a uh, an arguably how shall I pl- place it um, white dominant cultural perspective on um, the future of America is the simple fact that from a business perspective, um, since archaeology is currently being practiced in the United States as um, a business enterprise uh, that 
has essentially taken over much of the functional way in which archaeology and historic preservation are being done in the United States these these days. One of the negative elements of the Republican platform is essentially a uh, damper on small business. Small business is how American archaeology works in this day and age. And in addition to all the preservation ethic issues that we've talked about before, uh, there is uh, some sense in the archaeological community that small business, and in, in a broader sense, obviously, as well, that the small business will be hurt by that administration. But but getting back to some some grander concepts and some perspectives on sort of the holistic perspective that we have as anthropologists, we need to understand that different peoples provide different perspectives on who we are and how we develop. One of the wonderful elements of archaeology in North America is the number of international practitioners that have come to this country to uh, practice interdisciplinary archaeology, and I mean with its uh, corollary disciplines, climatologists, uh, pollen scientists, faunal experts. There are a lot of specialists from other parts of the world who are introducing new methodologies and new strategies in the, into the study of archaeology in North America. And by the same token, North Americans who are providing very singular and highly trained skills to the archaeology of the world. And uh, we see sort of a free flow of exchanges between archaeologists and anthropologists from all over the globe who run in and out of each other's countries to provide uh, interdisciplinary perspectives. And I shudder to think of where we would be if we didn't have the expertise from so many different countries in the world where um, developing strategies are uh, heightened and the interpretations that we can develop based on these uh, developing methodologies are so greatly enhanced by cooperative spirits between borders. So that I think uh, closing these borders off, as we are hearing, uh, is, is not such a wonderful idea. I think it's something that is going to isolate us to a tremendous degree, and it's going to bring us back into a situation where we will not be exposed to the marvelous ideas that are being promoted all over the world. And if we continue to isolate ourselves and put ourselves in defensive postures, even in these turbulent times, ultimately I think it's going to lead to a uh, constriction in what we are able to do intellectually, how we're going to be able to understand our uh, the perspectives from world-renowned scholars that have been only too anxious to come to our country and to help us um, in the scientific approaches to archaeology that we have so uh, valiantly championed, I would say. Uh, that's my own personal uh, opinion. And I, I think that all this talk about sealing us in, uh, isolating us, um, preserving the country for certain people and not for others, I think this is 
antithetical to the message message of anthropology worldwide. And we need to be very, very careful as scientists who are looking at the future of our planet in the global sense, which we clearly have to in this period of climate, climate change, um, that there is no alternative to cooperation. And that's both an intellectual as well as a commercial uh, and economic perspective that has to be guarded. So uh, to uh, the both parties that are involved in uh, the present critical election, I would argue very, very strongly that um, we need to engage the world community as much as possible. And uh, restricting immigration flow and especially the flow of ideas is something that we really can't afford to do. Um, the globalization track is one that with refinements is something that's going to go on once we understand that um, our perspectives are linked and our futures are linked. We have to move towards greater cooperation and understanding. And in archaeology, um, the cooperation between scholars across even the political spectrum is something that uh, has only enriched what we know and how we know it. And as methodologies and technologies advance to incredible degrees, I think the cooperation between countries and between peoples is one of the advantages that we have in uh, fighting environmental risks and expanding our understanding of the evolution of people and cultures in a global perspective. And without that kind of perspective, I think we are setting us up ourselves up for an isolationist disaster, if you want to call it that. And it's, it's not just an American issue. It's a, an issue that is going to be dealt with uh, going forward by all nations and all cultures. And the free flow of ideas, as well as the flow of people, especially from oppressed nations, these are items that we're all going to have to take into account. And archaeology plays a critical role in understanding the past history of free flows of people and ideas and could be a very, very productive roadmap going forward for the advancement of our understandings as we become a more globalized world. And on that note, we will bring to an end this version of Indiana Jones Myth Reality and 21st Century Archaeology, and we will look forward to our next broadcast. See you next time. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network 
its staff, and management. 